Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today is Scottish by birth, but her parents left for England when she was just out of primary school. Growing up in Devon, she was the first in her family to go to university, where she studied international relations. In the lead-up to the Scottish referendum, my guest surprised her family by opting to vote leave, citing the need for Scotland to have more democratic choice. Her first foray into politics came when she returned to Scotland and worked for a pro-independence think tank. Solidifying herself as a campaigner, she stood for election in the East Edinburgh seat, where she won a majority of more than 5,000 over Labour's Kezia Dugdale. Her first two years in the Scottish Parliament were spent on the backbenches. She has since sat as a minister for multiple departments and developed a reputation as an SNP rebel. Now she's running to lead the party, and just a few weeks' time we'll find out if she has been successful. My guest today is Ash Reagan. So Ash, thanks so much for coming on this podcast and finding the time. I realise you're very busy in what is quite a tight uh, time-wise leadership contest. Yes. Um, And the question we begin before we get to leadership um, by asking everyone is, um, did you have a happy childhood? I mentioned your Glaswegian parents, but you spent your early life in Bigger. I did. I enjoyed living in Bigger when I was was small. So I lived there till I was about 10. um, I just have one sister who's younger. It was a nice childhood where we were out. I think it was in those days, parents let kids roam a bit more. So we just used to roam around on our bicycles and riding horses and, you know, kind of doing all that kind of stuff. And it was lots of outdoor fun. So it was good. Um, and I did miss Scotland when I moved away, when I first moved down to England. Although Devon is lovely, um, I really felt a pang. I really missed the hills and the scenery of Scotland. And I think maybe that's why I eventually did come back. You know, because I did miss it. Although I did enjoy living in, in England as well. I've got many friends and family down there. But my dad died when I was 18. So that, you know, was very significant family-wise. We were quite close. And he was diagnosed with a smoking-related cancer when he was, I think, 48, 49. And then he died just 10 weeks later. So it wasn't really even time to kind of adjust to the fact that somebody had had that very serious, you know, or terminal diagnosis. And I was in the middle of setting my A-levels at the time. And we were all just devastating. I don't think I stopped crying for about three weeks. It was really horrible. Yeah, horrible. And and did it put you off your studies at all, or did you have to take? It did. Time? Yeah, I didn't get the results in my. Cause I think he died. So I think he was diagnosed on Valentine's Day, and then obviously that's the time you'd be sort of preparing to set your A levels, probably at the beginning of May. And he died at the beginning of April. So yeah, it was right in the period where you'd be kind of prepping for your exams. So, um, but my university choice. Once that was explained to them, they they let me in anyway, which was very kind of them. And just so supposed to roll back slightly, why did your parents decide to move to England? I, I saw somewhere um, about their Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in, in Glasgow, you'll know that there's been, you know, sectarian issues, I guess you would probably call it. I think it's a lot better now than it used to be, but certainly in the sort of 60s and 70s, it, that would have been a theme. And my mum is a Protestant, my dad's a Catholic, so that's, it's not, you know, outside the realms of possibility. But it's, so um, obviously you'd sort of go between one set of family and the other. And yeah, it was interesting, interesting times. So I wonder, I mean, I'm, my mum hasn't really confirmed this, but I did wonder if that's why we never really lived in Glasgow. You know, we moved outside of Glasgow where maybe that wasn't as much an issue. And then we moved to Devon because one of my mum's sisters lived down there and she'd gone down there when she was 17 and never came back to Scotland. And uh, I think my dad, there, obviously the economy wasn't doing very well. And so my dad was kind of looking for work and so that's why we ended up moving away. Um, no, you're the first in your family to go to university. Um, yeah. How, how did you find university? Um, was it as you expected? Did you feel uh, as though you fitted in? Yeah, definitely. So I went to Keele, which was um, at the time 
was a campus university. I don't think it is much now. So I think that was, was fairly unusual and that I lived in halls for the whole three years. So I really liked it. I think you were very, you know, you were fully in, sub submerged, if you like, into the university experience because you were on campus and everybody you were interacting with, you know, was students, basically. So it was quite a, a good experience. So I really enjoyed it. And I very much enjoyed being, you know, with people who I felt were a bit more like me. I hadn't felt that like that so much at school because I like to talk about politics and big ideas and you get you I got that opportunity to do that at university so no I, I thoroughly enjoyed it yeah I definitely felt that bit when I got to university too did you feel very party political at that point or did you just always have an interest in politics more as a kind mm -hmm. of an outside perspective yeah so obviously parents who are from Glasgow and they were interested in politics my dad would often um he was actually dyslexic but we didn't know that so he hadn't completed a lot of formal schooling. And I think his reading and writing skills were not as good as they should have been. But he was very bright. So he used to spend a lot of time listening to the radio. So we'd listen to Radio 4 a lot and get a lot of his information that way. So he was quite well informed about politics. And it was very normal for us to sit around the dinner table and talk about politics in the evening, which I now realise is maybe not normal behaviour. But it certainly was in our house. So I had a good understanding of, you know, many political issues by the time I was probably 14 but my parents were most certainly, you know, Labour voters at that point and, you know, very you know, anti-Tory, you know, very anti a lot of Tory policies. Obviously, this was the time of Thatcher. There was a point when, in, when I was young when, remember when the interest rates under the Conservatives in the early 90s were up at 15% and people were losing their houses all over the place? So, um, you know, these are the sort of vivid sort of childhood memories that I have, but they're of a political nature, which probably makes me slightly strange. But, yeah. So it was definitely, you know, left of centre all, all the way through. My politics haven't really changed in my whole life. And when I got to university, there was a mixture of people. I think Keele University is known for being a uni that has quite a high representation of state school students, um, which maybe gives it a different feel. And it, there were some, you know, I think they had a good account of themselves. They'd done some quite radical things in the past. It was, a, it was an interesting place to be. Now, on this podcast, we have to skip through time quite quickly <laughs> because yeah, otherwise we're, we're going to take three hours and I feel like you might have to do more campaigning. Um, <laughs> so I'm just going to skip through two events here, which is, um, so you, you had twin boys mm -hmm. and you also moved back to Scotland. Can you just briefly yeah. talk us through, um, you know, I suppose, I mean, I can't I imagine one child's pretty disruptive, let alone two, and then also, also yeah. the decision to go back to Scotland. Absolutely. Yeah, so I lived in London. So after I graduated, moved to London with a lot of my friends. And worked in various different jobs, but mainly PR, which I enjoyed. So I worked in an office at um, Portland Street, I think, at one point, and really enjoyed London. But when I decided that we wanted to have a family, I kind of just felt this pull of going back to Scotland. And so that's what we did. So my husband at the time and I moved back. And then, yeah, so then we went on to have twins, which was a, a hell of an experience, I must say. I didn't expect that. You go in to get your scan. And then she actually said to me, I think it was nine weeks, and she said to me, oh, are you ready for, I think she said a shock or something. And of course, your mind immediately goes, there's something wrong with the baby. The baby's died or, you know, it's maybe not a good way to phrase it. And then she said to me, oh, you're, there's twins. And I was like, ah, and I couldn't speak for about half an hour, which if you know me, it's probably, you can understand I was quite shocked. But yeah, but it was fine. They are, it's very hard work at the beginning. But once they go to school, it gets a bit easier. I saw one of them yesterday because we were in Aberdeen and one of them's at uni there. So I managed to meet up with him and have a have lunch so it's nice do they end up looking after each other quite a lot when you have twins because I, I would hope for that no, I no I mean mine no, are identical same. and they were very identical active. oh my god that must be so confusing so they're quite they're, they have a bit of a I would say they have a slightly competitive relationship so they're all trying to outdo each other in sporting endeavors and 
you know, passing exams and stuff. And we had a very awkward moment with the university applications where one had done slightly better and so got offers to everywhere, including the top choice of the other one who didn't get into his favourite uni. And the other one turned down the offer to that uni. So that was a bit of an awkward week. But um, yeah, no, they get on. They get on well. Now... Let's talk about the independence referendum because it's really interesting that now, of course, in the leadership contest, um, you're speaking you know, a lot about the need for independence. But at the time, your family, I think, were quite surprised that you voted for independence. Can you talk us through, not to sound too American, your journey? Mm. Yeah, so I've always, I think, I'd always had a strong sense that Scotland was a country, our, our nation. I definitely always had that view. And having been brought up, I suppose, being... You know, I felt like in a way when we lived in England, they always say you're more something when you're away from that place. So you always say you're more Scottish when you don't live in Scotland. And so I felt like I was I grew up in Devon in a bit of a Scottish enclave, if you like. And so I had a very strong sense of Scottish identity. So when I moved back, the the, the topic of obviously at that point, you know, the SNP had, had risen to power and the, the independence referendum was on. And so it became a question that everyone needed to be able to answer, you know. Well, how are you going to vote? And a lot of people in 2012, I think, hadn't obviously made their minds up. And I was out. It wasn't my whole family, just my husband at the time. And we're divorced now. But he said, uh, we're not divorced because of that, by the way. It's not for political reasons. But uh, at the time, he had was going to answer for us. And he said, oh, yes, we'll be voting no. And I said, hang on a minute. Went off, did some research. And I was like, yes, I'm a, I'm a yes voter. And then, it, But it was actually him that encouraged me to join the yes campaign. So, um, in fact, I think he was trying to encourage me to join the no campaign, but he was saying to me, you know, you're interested in politics. This is going to be the biggest thing in Scottish politics and history. This is something that you should get involved in. And I took a bit of encouraging and then joined the yes campaign, which is perhaps not what he had anticipated. <laughs> yeah, so getting involved just the other side. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then after doing that, was that just when you thought, actually, I want, I want to be a politician? No, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. And I became, I did all the grassroots stuff for the Yes campaign, but I also joined one of the, we had a lot of groups, sort of civil society groups that formed, you know, like um, Yes academics, lawyers for Yes, you know, there's all these groups, business for Yes. So I joined Women for Independence, which is the, the group of campaigning women. And we had this, they were calling out all these organizations for doing manals, you know, where there was no women on the panel. And then they quickly realized that they needed to produce a list of women that would be prepared to go and speak on the, at these events because the organizers would just come back and say, oh, well, we asked some women to, to talk and they wouldn't do it. So I put my name forward for that and then ended up speaking on panels, mainly over the, in the south of Scotland area and doing debates and things like that through the Yes campaign. So that gave me obviously a taste of being in politics and you know answering questions at the front and stuff. And I found that I really enjoyed it. So I thought after that, I thought, right, I'll, I should have a look and see if I can go into politics. And was it pretty obvious at that point as someone who, you know, family, you've grown up in a household on the left and also you back the independence movement. Mm. So it was slightly a no-brainer at that point that you would join the SNP, I guess? Well, I'd already joined. So yeah. I actually joined the SNP either end of 2012 or the beginning of 2013. I can't remember. So I've been in the party for 10 years and it was prior to the referendum because at that point I thought, right, well, if I'm pro-independence, this is the party you join. Um, so I did. So, yeah. But some of my family members, like my wider family, had already switched over to voting SNP well before that, as a lot of, obviously, a lot of people in Scotland had. Now, obviously, you've been serving as an MSP. You served in government. I'm going to try and bring this to the leadership contest. But I, I suppose yeah. our readers probably, and listeners, uh, you know, have been following quite closely just ahead of that uh, leadership contest, was a gender uh, recognition bill. Mm -hmm. And of course, you're known as someone who actually 
stepped down over it from a government role. And therefore, what was your reaction when Nicola Sturgeon quit? Did you think it, that it was to do with the gender recognition bill or did you think it was other factors? I mean, it, it seemed to, at least from, you know, sitting over here, like becoming a very, you know, potent issue. Mm. I think it had become a very, um, an issue of concern. And I think it showed, certainly for me and some others, the disconnect, I think, between the leadership and the views of the wider public. Because I, th- I think the leadership didn't, I think there was, they, they consistently misunderstood the strength of feeling that the public had over this issue. And I think they miscalculated and thought that it would just go away. And of course it didn't because right after the bill was voted through, we then had, and you probably saw this, we then had some issues with trans prisoner allocation where a a convicted double rapist was placed in the women's prison estate in Scotland. And obviously that caused the public were basically in uproar about that, you know, very concerned. And that became a bit of a running sore for Nicola Sturgeon where she was constantly being asked by the media, uh, you know, is this rapist a man or a woman? And she refused to answer the question. And it just became, a, it, became it got to the point where it, it started to look like they were, the media were laughing at her. And she had never been in that position before. You know, she's a very good communicator. She's an excellent politician and to get into that point. So I think that the gender was involved in it, but I think there are probably other factors as well. And I wondered what it must have been felt like for you as someone who is a, you know, a nationalist who strongly believes in Scottish independence and also an SNP government, when you suddenly have the Tory government in Westminster, Sir Rishi Sunak, issuing mm-hmm. that Section 35 order, which mm-hmm. stopped or at least blocked a piece of legislation that you opposed. But in a way, it was depicted by some as a Westminster power grab. Did you have conflicted emotions over it? Or, or what did you think of that move by the, by the mm-hmm. Westminster government? Yeah, it's difficult because obviously... If I'd been in charge of that bill, let's put it this way, I would have drafted it in such a way that it was competent under devolution. So I tried to warn the government, and and not just me, but many others said there was a conflict with the Equality Act, and we were all told, you know, there wasn't, and it was everything was fine. And obviously that's, I believe that's not the case. I could clearly see that at the time. So, um, but we are in the position, we're in the position that we're in now, and the bill is blocked, as you say. So what I've said, because obviously we've been asked this question at all the hustings, and we've done, I think we've done nine hustings now in the last week, so we've asked that, and I um, have a different opinion to the other candidates in the leadership race in that I will not go to court to fight that because we're going to lose that court case. And I don't think the public would support a leader or a party, indeed, that wants to waste hundreds of thousands of pounds of public money on something that the public don't want. So to me, it's madness to do that. So I, I won't be opposing it. However, I have said that if there is public appetite for it to look at the trans um, issue again, that that's something a citizens' assembly could be convened to look at specifically. Do you think um, Rishi Sunak made the right decision on that then? I, I think it did conflict with the Equality Act, yes. I mean, that was, that was the point that me and many of the other women campaigners were making, that this was affecting women's rights, in, in its, particularly in terms of single-sex spaces and the legal exemptions around that, that they would become much more difficult to enforce. And indeed, we felt that in many cases, um, they wouldn't be able to be enforced. So. And I believe single-sex spaces for women are very important and that most women would, will tell you that they feel they're very important for them. Now, ultimately, Nicola Sturgeon resigns. At what point do you start thinking about throwing your hat in the ring? Is it something you'd contemplated in the past? Well, when I first got in, I've, this is the way I've been describing it, that I, ne- I didn't arrive at Hollywood with my eyes on the top job. I hadn't considered it until about Christmas. So around about the time when the gender reform bill was passed by the parliament, I started to 
have serious concerns, I think, about some of the decisions that were being made and thought that actually if it came to a point that Nicola did resign, that I did start to think I'd consider putting my hat into the ring. So very, very recently, only a matter of months ago, really. Yeah, and when she did resign, did you start getting phone calls from people saying, you know, you should go for it? Or... Yes, immediately. In fact, I'd been getting those sort of messages from um, October last year. And at one really? point in, Mar- in January and February, um, they were intensifying. I was getting about three an hour on Twitter and emails and things like that. So yeah, I, was, I, got, I had quite a lot of those. Probably not. I'm sure other people are getting the same. You know, Joanna Cherry has told me she gets loads of them. Fergus Ewing said he was getting loads. So a lot of people are getting them. But um, it does make you think, oh, well, if other people are thinking that, you know, I could go for it, it does give you that a bit of confidence as well. And when you're getting those messages, I suppose just for listeners who are having fun crazy, was it about the gender bills? Was it about a range of issues that made people think that perhaps a fresh leadership was required? I think, yes, I think fresh, I mean, obviously, you know, we've been watching, I mean, I don't know if you follow Scottish politics much, but the Labour Party up here have had almost constant leadership contests. I think almost half the party have been leader at one point. Yeah, we had Kezia recently. Yeah, we're quite used to watching them going through all this sort of bitter contests and feeling quite smug, you know, that we are having coronations and one leader's lined up for the next one. So the SMEs are in a very different position than it would be normally. And obviously we've been watching down south and the Tories and Liz Truss's disastrous, you know, week. Well, how long did she last? Three weeks or something? Or a week? Yeah, I mean, it depends how you count it. It's 44 yeah. or 49 days. Um, I know, unbelievable. So, I mean, that you've never seen anything like that before. You think this, the winner so, of the SNP yeah. contest, you, you think, will last a bit longer? Yeah. So, I, well, I don't know. It depends who gets it, I think. So anyway, if I, I can't remember if I've answered, I can't remember what the question was, if I've gone off tangent. Oh no, just, just the general, I suppose. I suppose we were messaging you about uh, running for leader back in October, right? Oh, right, yeah. No, I think there is I think there is a need for a fresh... I would definitely say that because I'm not the continuity candidate. I think um, Hamza would say something different. But I think we definitely do not need more of the same. We don't need the status quo. We need to reset the party, go in a totally different direction from what's being, what's being done. Um, which is not to say that I don't regard Nicola as a good politician. I absolutely do. I mean, you do not stay at the top of politics for eight years, you know, if you're if you're no good at what you're doing. So, but I just think we need to go in a different direction now, having watched what's been going on for the last few years. So, yeah, I think that the gender thing. I mean, a lot of people agreed with me in terms of the gender thing. There were a lot of people that didn't agree with me, but still respected the position that I'd taken. And obviously, I'm the only. It's very unusual, obviously, for people to resign from government on a point of policy. Um, particularly unusual up here. I think it perhaps happens more at Westminster because you've got greater numbers. Yeah, or at least in recent years. Normal, I think. We are very whipped up here. The numbers are often closer and there's less flexibility with that. So I'm the first nationalist to ever resign on a point of policy. But I think there was in the last, because of Scottish Parliament's been going for 20 years, I think there were two others. I think there was a Lib Dem once and a Labour. So it's very unusual in political terms. So I think people respect that. Did you come under a lot of pressure when you not to resign then if it was if it's such an, a rare thing there? Well, I think that they yeah, I mean I was basically told that I was to, you know, do my job, collect responsibility, and I had to vote for it. I didn't have a choice and you know I was to turn up and vote for it. After sort of laying out the fact that I had, you know, very serious concerns over some time as well, I will say. So at that point you just have to decide what you want to do. And so I took a few hours and thought about it and then thought, right, well, I I can't vote for it, so I have to resign. And as you as you've mentioned, yeah, you're not the favourite in this leadership contest. I think the establishment candidate is Humza Youssef. Then you have Kate Forbes, who is probably seen as the the second candidate in the race. And how did you find it when they announced the rules? Do you think that you're being disadvantaged as basically a, a candidate who, who has less of a high profile? 
Yeah, I think the constitution of the SNP, I think, used to set out, and I'm not sure exactly when this was changed, but I think it's quite recent, that a leadership contest should take about four months. And, you know, that seems probably a bit more appropriate than one that takes sort of three or four weeks. That, to me, and I think many people watching this, whether they're in Scotland or outside of Scotland, you know, this is not a contest for, you know, there's a couple of political parties in the Scottish Parliament who have four or five seats. You know, this is not just a contest for leadership of a small party where the dominant political force in Scotland and the person that gets this will become the first minister. So clearly it's very important, you know, that we get this right, that the, the contest is run in a transparent way and that people have trust in the process. And, you know, the membership have got the time and space to look at what everyone's offering and then make their choice. Yeah, and, and actually the, the breakneck speed isn't necessarily giving that space. Well, it's it's certainly a disadvantage to me. I'll be yeah. upfront about that. As the candidate with probably the least um, name, you know, least well-known with a lower name recognition, that a longer contest would give you more time to build up that momentum and to try to get your message across. So I, d- I definitely have had more of a sort of a cold start perhaps than the other two have. But I think my message, you know, is resonating with membership. And, you know, in the last week, I've definitely felt that more people are coming up to talk to me about it. I'm getting a lot of messages from people saying that they, you know, they think what I'm putting out there is, what they, you know, music to their ears, basically, is what they want to hear from an SNP leadership candidate. And, you know, that, well, in fact, a number of people started contacting me in the last couple of days saying that I'm the only hope for the SNP. That's the way, you know, that's the way they see it, that if the other two candidates get it, um, they feel that that, you know, um, how are they sort of putting it? Um, well, some swear words have been used, but I don't see that down that road. We try not to swear in this yeah. podcast unless we really yeah. need to. But <laughs> Yeah, so they're, they're basically saying, I suppose they feel the other two are continuity, whether you agree with you know that or not, and that that's not what the party needs right now, I think is probably the best way to summarise it. Yeah, and, and I suppose, so do you still think at this point in the, you know, the contest that you have a chance or because another thing that yes. can be really important in these leadership debates is often having a candidate can change the debate okay you can well, influence- I have changed the debate yeah I absolutely have I mean the fact that I've been in this well let's put it this way um for people who don't know the SNP very well the SNP is obviously the party of independence um but you know it has changed a little bit in the last few years the membership has been very high it's fluctuating we think we've lost a, a few members it's actually quite difficult to now know what the demographic is of the people that remain in the party membership. So that's one of the first things. But, you know, what we would probably assume about the membership of the SNP is that a route to independence would be very high on their wish list. You know, if they were looking for a leader, somebody that could set us on the road to independence and somebody that had a credible plan for that. So I would imagine that as the only candidate that has that, you know, if you think about it, you know, I'm, I'm the candidate of the nationalist wing of the party, if you like. Really? The nationalist wing of the party should be most of the party. So, yeah, Kate Forbes has obviously argued that she her ultimate aim is to deliver independence, but it might take a bit longer than some supporters would like. Do you think you could? You're the best place. I suppose you do think you're the best place to deliver it. Yeah. But ultimately, how quickly do you think you can deliver independence? And is that through a democratic referendum? Yeah. So I don't think the other two candidates have any sort of credible plan to get to independence. They're just saying that they'll basically repeat what we've already been doing. So what we are doing at the moment is we're winning election after election and we're using that as a moral mandate, if you like, to go and ask Westminster for a referendum because that's the way that it's set up. And Westminster is within its rights to refuse the one and it has been doing that. So you've got to think, right, well, if this is, you know, this isn't going to work because we've been doing this already for the last few years. So what I'm suggesting is that actually, you know, the referendum isn't the gold standard. Really, the ballot box is the gold standard. And in most countries that have been independent, become independent, and I'm not talking about ones that have become independent from the UK, but, you know, in a wider context, 
most of them don't use referendums. They just use ballot boxes to demonstrate rising levels of support. Now, I saw a poll this week which suggested that 52, you know, there was 52% support for independence. That is a majority. The polls do vary. Yeah, we've been consistently over, well, not consistently. We have been over 50% a lot, but you're right to say it is fluctuating. That is fair. Um, so I believe that, you know, we do have the support for that now. So what I'm saying is that Westminster can't hold Scotland hostage, if you look at it like that. You know, we, we do have international law. Self-determination is a, a respected concept. And, you know, we're always being told that the UK is a voluntary union. So if it is voluntary, then Scotland must have an ability to express its views. And by the UK government refusing a referendum, that is their attempt to not let Scotland express its views. Well, I mean, that's not tenable long term. So I'm going to suggest that we run at every election as an opportunity for the Scots to express their views and to decide if they want to become an independent country. And, you know, if we do have the levels of support that I'm suggesting, 52, 53 percent, then, you know, we will get a majority of votes and then we will commence negotiations to exit the UK. And at that point, if Westminster isn't listening, you could do you could well, declare it. Westminster says a lot of things and then they go back on a lot of them. Yeah. And, you know, in most cases, they've said, you know, initially, and this is maybe going back to the British Empire, so some of them are not that recent, but they've initially always said no, and then eventually always said yes, because they're not going to want to be an international prior on this. And also, we are in a democratic culture where the ballot box, you know, holds weight. I mean, we're not really credibly saying that a UK government minister is going to deny, you know, be a democracy denier. I mean, they're, they're not going to go there. So yeah, I think there's a lot of bluff and bluster. When it actually comes down to it, if Scotland votes, you know, a majority to leave, we will be leaving. Now, just a few final things. There's, an int- there's some interesting polling today about the different candidates and independents. And for example, Kate Forbes is, I think, seen as a candidate who would actually win over the SNP some unionist voters. But there is a poll suggesting that some SNP yes voters are less likely to back independence if she is leader. I wonder if you could explain to our, our listeners, I suppose, for those who aren't Scottish nationalists, do you think that there is an option whereby, and we don't have to like name specific candidates here, but you know, there there are candidates who could win this race that would uh, mean people stop supporting independence? Because I think logically you might think you get independence, then you can change leader however you like. Mm. So, well, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm quite understanding the question, but I mean, I would say that both Kate Forbes and Hamza are devolutionist candidates, or at least at the very maximum, they're what we would call gradualists. So they move very slowly towards independence, whereas I would probably be categorised as a fundamentalist. So that certainly there are there are splits on that in the party. Yeah. Sure. So I, I suppose it's more. Do you think? I mean, some people are saying that they're less likely to vote for independence if you have certain leaders. And I just wondered mm. if you thought that there could be a leader that might hurt the cause of independence or not. Yes, I think that is fair. Yeah. yeah. And then the other thing I just wondered was one of the things when I've been reading coverage of this uh, of the leadership contest is often people talk about you and Alex Salmond and they say, oh, she's the Alex Salmond candidate. I wonder, do you find it quite annoying? It's almost suggesting, <laughs> you know, Alex Salmond's obviously, um, and I know you've spoken um, positively about what he's contributed to, to, yeah. the, to the movement, but almost to be dismissed as, I don't know, a, a Salmond person. I, I wonder how you felt it. Maybe you see it as a good or a bad thing. No, I mean, it's quite insulting because it's sort of implying that I'm, you know, I think someone said I was a sock puppet or something. Yeah. It's really very insulting. I'm not sure they would say about say that about a male candidate. I mean, oh, yeah. I don't know Alex Salmond very well. That's the thing. I only have only served under Nicola Sturgeon, so I really don't know him very well. However, I do know that he's a very good politician and he wants independence. So if he thinks that I'm the candidate that could get us to independence, you know, some people will listen to that. 
Yeah, it feels like, you know, completely. It's, it's kind of that lazy thing people would do to suggest that someone's not fully of their own mind. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, yeah, yeah <laughs> it's not fair. And then I suppose just the final thing on Samad, I wondered, I mean, obviously he's been saying that, you know, the suggestions that he thinks you're the person best placed to deliver independence. And do you think, how, how much do you think he could be brought back into the independence movement? Because obviously lots of people look at the things that happened previously and found not guilty but you know wonder about you know mm. is he seen as a progressive candidate or you know, progressive influence and I wonder what you thought about that well he's, he's obviously set up his own party so he set up Alba and you know I think I've seen some polling suggesting that Alba are you know improving in terms of the, the vote share that they've been getting recently so it is possible that they could come back or not come back you know they could break through let's put it that way and gain seats in the next Scottish election I think that's possible um, I, I mean, I've been asked a lot if I'd let him back in the party. I mean, obviously, we don't let people into the party that are in other political parties. So clearly, he's in another political party. That wouldn't happen. But I've, I've been really clear that I want to work with all the, the wider movement. That's what we would call it, the wider movement. So that would be the pro-independence political parties, of which there are many, although not many of them have actual, you know, have seats in the parliament. Um, but they are influential in the movement. Then there's a couple of organisations that do, you know, marching and hold big events. So there's them. And then there's the civic side, you know, so you've got your think tanks, businesses and all the pro indie yes groups like we were talking about for women for independence. Yes. Um, Asians for yes. Academics for yes. You know, that side of things. So I've um, I think I'm the candidate that can unite that movement. I've already started reaching out to them and had conversations with people. And that is the way we're going to win independence. We're not going to do it just through the SNP. So I think um, the, the other pro indie sectors of Scotland are very important to this. Yeah, I'm from East Lovian and we currently have an Alva MP in um, Kenny right. McCaskill. Well, of course you do. Yeah, that's right. I forgot. I forgot about Kenny. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I suppose to your point, as in if you're going to use general elections or elections as, you know, to, to show the case for independence, mm-hmm. um, if Alba, you know, if Alba were to see some move from Alba to the SNP, it reduces the chance of splitting the independence vote in some of these seats. Mm. So, so it, well, the yeah. mechanism that I'm suggesting um, certainly for showing majority support for independence, is where you could vote for any political party that's pro-independence as long as they signed up to be part of this VEM. So I would hope, you know, that ALBA and the Green Party, you know, and the other smaller parties will all sign up to this. And then it doesn't need to split the vote. You know, everyone can vote for, you know, exactly who they want, whether that's a pro-indie party or, or a party that's not pro-independence. And then we will see what the results of that are. Now, uh, final question uh, is one that we ask everyone on this podcast, Ash, and that is, what is the worst advice you've ever been given? And I'm going to be slightly cheeky because I'm very interested in the worst advice you've had your entire life. But also because we are talking um, during a leadership contest, I wonder if you had any bad advice during the contest too. Yes, I, honestly, at one point, I had so many men on the phone to me telling me what I should be doing and what I shouldn't be doing. Um, most of them weren't elected, though, in case you start speculating about who it was. But um, a lot of people with a lot of ideas about what she's doing. And it gets to the point where you think you're thinking, well, hang on a minute, I'm the one that's doing this. And everyone's criticizing everything you're doing. So that gets a bit frustrating because, you know, especially because I probably had the least amount of, you know, like media training or whatever of all the candidates. So clearly it was a very steep learning curve for me at the beginning this. And um, it is difficult to know what, you know, what to do for the best in certain situations. So you have to just think, right, think everything through, you know, what to do it, what to do it, and just kind of do it. And I think if you listen to too many people, you, you, you can get very blown off course. So I've tried to just stick to what I think is right. And I think I've got good political instincts. I think if you just listen to yourself, 
then you, you kind of chart a course through that. But yeah, it is. People want to help. They're trying, they're trying to be helpful. But um, some people are not very good at pep talks. Let's put it that way. They're all pointing out all the things you've got wrong. When really, in this sort of contest, you just have to, well, in life, I think, in general, you've got, I think women in particular are not as good at dusting themselves off and just thinking, okay, I made a mistake, move on. You know, we tend to dwell on things. So I'm trying to get better at that. I think that's important. And worst advice ever? <laughs> worst advice ever. Um, you know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I don't think that's very good advice. <laughs> and that's a black coffee counts as breakfast, I agree with you. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah, so I've started not eating uh, all day. You know, I do that sort of intermittent fasting thing. So I think this whole thing that we all thought you've all got to get up and have breakfast, you know, I, I'm not sure that's, that is actually true now. It's not what's fueling your leadership campaign. <laughs> no, black coffee and um, fruit pastels. <laughs> Classic Scottish diet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, thanks, Ash. Thanks for joining today.